This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. Quote, The science of government it is my duty to study, more than all other sciences. The art of legislation and administration and negotiation ought to take place, indeed, to exclude in a manner all other arts. I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce and agriculture, in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. End quote. And you may not recognize those words unless you happen to be a history buff, and I'm not quite sure where I first found them, but they're quite compelling. Those words are John Adams. He penned them in a letter to his wife Abigail on 12 April 1780. Now, that was the day he wrote it, not the day Abigail received it, but we'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. John Adams served as the second president of the United States from 1797 to 1781. And like most of our founding fathers, he has a resume a mile long of various political jobs. He was George Washington's vice president, the minister to Great Britain, the minister to the Netherlands, the envoy to France, the chairman of the Marine Committee, which is actually the predecessor to the Secretary of the Navy that we have today. He served as the chief justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court and a Massachusetts delegate to the Continental Congress. Not only would one individual never hold all of these jobs today, this was not uncommon at all at the time back then. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Franklin, Adams, Hamilton, etc. all held numerous jobs and positions of similar importance during the founding of the United States. And I often think of this when I consider my own situation to be difficult or burdensome. Add to that that most of them were landowners, farmers, and, while not in any way admirable at all, employed and managed considerable paid and slave staffs. And that's not at all to glamorize the last part, believe me, but simply to point out what a truly full plate looks like compared to my own relatively mundane and simple life. It wouldn't honestly surprise me if they had the technology at the time, if John Adams himself might have had his own podcast. Who knows? Can you imagine Washington and Adams having themselves a little a little gab fest in a podcast in front of a fireplace as they governed the newly formed country? What a wild thought. But oh, to have an insight into their minds at the time. That would have been interesting. And John Adams was born October 30th, 1735 in Braintree, Massachusetts Bay in what was then British America. And he died on July 4th, 1826 in Quincy, Massachusetts, which was the new name for Braintree following American independence. And an interesting bit of trivia here, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who had been Adams' vice president and his successor as president, both died on the same day, again, July 4th, 1826. And a third founding father, James Monroe, who was the fifth president of the United States, actually died five years later on the exact same day in 1831. So three of the founding fathers died on the anniversary of the nation's founding. Now save that for your next dinner party or bar trivia night. And John Adams attended Harvard, he practiced law, and he wrote anonymous political essays under possibly the most ridiculous pen name which I've ever heard, which was Humphrey Plowjogger. That's right, Humphrey Plowjogger. Where he came up with that, I can only imagine. 
and he married his wife Abigail, the recipient of today's letter and today's quote, in 1764. And a couple of years later, Abigail gave birth to a son, also named John, but with the middle name Quincy, who would go on to become the sixth president of the United States from 1825 to 1829, which means that John Adams lived just long enough to see his son serve as president. Beats my Little League participation trophy by a long shot. Sorry about that, Dad. And as was the custom of the day, letters were the only real means of long-distance communication between any two parties. And this is pretty fantastic for those of us that occasionally like to nerd out on this kind of stuff, because if, and it's a big if, those letters survived, they provide us literal first-hand accounts of the day. For example, this letter survives, and you can find photos of it online, complete with crossed-out words and lines and little add-in words, when an excited Adams overlooked an it or misspelled something and didn't want to repen the entire letter. Adams sent it while on a moderately kinda, sorta important mission to negotiate treaties of peace and commerce with the British in France during the Revolutionary War. No small assignment whatsoever. No pressure, John. In addition to writing daily, or even more frequent letters back to Congress about the goings-on there. Remember, no telephone or telegraph or plane, so everything took quite some time, often weeks, to arrive back home. Adams wrote this letter. Adams' letter to Abigail is brief, and it's familiar. It speaks of Paris and his enjoyments thus far thereof, and it's very similar to the kind of small talk that any of us would have with those of us we love when catching up all away. You pick up the phone, you send an email, you'd say, hey, how's the weather? How are things going? What have you been up to? Here's what it's like where I'm at. Wish you were here. It's got that kind of tone as a letter from husband to wife. And it's not overly sappy, and it's not overly romantic, and it's not even overly long. It's actually a relatively short letter. It probably took 10 minutes to write. Who knows? But you can tell that it's an intimate letter. It's close. It's the kind of correspondence you would expect to see between two people that were married and far, far apart. Because remember, no matter how long... Adams had actually been working in Paris on his official duties. He had been gone that much longer because of the amount of time it took to travel. Remember, we're talking weeks to get across the Atlantic. This was still a relatively new and novel thing and was still relatively dangerous at the time. But Adams had undertaken it with one, as one of his many responsibilities to go forth and do the nation's bidding as his country was literally, at the time, remember, seven, in 1780, they are steeped in the challenges of the day and fighting off the British and, and winning and declaring their independence. That's what's going on, and that's what Adams is working through and fighting for through political means while his friends and family and others are back home trying to survive the, the literal war for their own freedom. So Adams, in and among all his other responsibilities, again, he's still got a wife and a family back home with all of the things that go along with being a landowner and all of his responsibilities there, but he is now also on assignment in Europe trying to negotiate for peace and for commerce. Because believe it or not, even during the war with the British, there was still trade that took place between the colony and their imperial leadership. And so too with France. Obviously, having goodwill with France was a significant benefit to the American colonies as they fought for their freedom, and not a guaranteed or assured one by any stretch of the imagination either. Certainly the French recognized that if the American colony could break away from its British imperial lords, that so too could French colonies, which also dotted the globe at the time, could potentially see that as their opportunity to break away from their lords. So they were a little hesitant to be there. So Adams had a very important role while he was in, in Paris, 
But that didn't stop him from taking advantage of the things that Paris has to offer. And we all know of Paris as this beautiful place. We've seen the Eiffel Tower and the Arc de Triomphe and the Champs-Élysées and all those wonderful things that the French have to offer and the Seine and all of the lovely cathedrals and history that are in that country. And Adams speaks in the letter in glowing terms of the monuments and the arts that are available to him in Paris, and he expresses in good old 18th century terms that he could, quote, fill volumes if I could have time. But Adams, as you would expect, a professional man of his numerous responsibilities to do, acknowledges his duties to his country and turns quickly from his lofty dreams of writing volumes about the arts and delivers today's quote. He says, quote, The science of government it is my duty to study, more than all other sciences. The art of legislation and administration and negotiation ought to take place, indeed, to exclude, in a manner, all other arts. I must study politics and war, that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture, in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. End quote. Now, it's nearly impossible to say for certain, but based on my reading of the letter, I like to think that Adams didn't write this with one ounce of self-pity. Woe is me, negotiating for the founding of my nation as a free country against their imperial rulers. So sad for me that I can't look at paintings and tapestries while my countrymen are actively dying in pursuit of freedom they'll never see. No, I like to imagine Adams penning these words, and even before the ink is dry on the paper, his spirit is strengthened, his spine is stiffened, and he's back to the task at hand. Now, is that an overly romanticized version of a founding father? Yeah, maybe. But I know if I was Adams, I would have felt secure in my correspondence with my wife to have a moment of self-pity. I mean, after all, I'm a man just like him, and him just like me. It wouldn't be abnormal. But maybe Adams was able to transcend above the immediate for the potential future. And it makes sense for somebody who was willing to be a part of a nation and actively negotiate during a war in which the British, who, per the law of the day, had every right to have control over a colony, everybody else did it, the Netherlands, the French, the British, the Spanish, and many would for quite some time after that. So this was largely unprecedented. Never before had a colony of such large importance and size, geographically and population-wise, and also natural resource-wise, decided to break away from their colony, and done so successfully. So this was unheard of, and this could have ended very, very poorly. Now, of course, we know from history and where we are today that the Founding Fathers were successful, but every single one of them at the time would have been considered treasonous, and would certainly, given the opportunity, been killed by the British for their transgressions. So here is Adams. A few years into a war, I mean, the war's been going on for about four or five years at this point, depending on when you, when you draw the start point of the Revolutionary War. And Adams is in Paris, France, trying to negotiate during this conflict. And for somebody to do that leads me to think that, that Adams had a much larger view than maybe we even realize. All of the Founding Fathers had to. They saw something far, far greater than what they had immediately in front of them. These men were all well off. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison. You can go and visit their homes today. They're on palatial estates, massive tracts of land with these 
ornate homes. Now, granted, almost all of those homes were almost entirely built by slave labor, and there's plenty abhorrent and reprehensible things to be said about that kind of behavior, but it was not abnormal at the time. But these men were well off. They didn't need to incite or spark or fuel a revolution. They could have lived out their days happily and healthy with their families, on their plantations, and on their farms, without a care in the world. But they didn't. And I think, for me, the greatest part of this quote lies not in some hierarchy of value. It truly doesn't matter what fell into each of the three generations mentioned in the quote. Remember, we have Adams, his children, and their children, so three generations. What matters is that Adams is taking on what he considers to be the least desirable, the most burdensome and loathsomely tolerated of them, so that his children may have something more enjoyable, more fulfilling, more meaningful, so that their children can go even further into enjoyment and further from the loathsome. And what parent doesn't want that for their children? What generation doesn't want that for the next generation? And if you find yourself ever saying things like, well, in my day, dot, 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 or generation whatever is so lazy and entitled, etc., etc., you may want to consider that perhaps that enjoyment that you didn't have enabled them to have it just as your enjoyment probably came at the expense of the generation before you, and so on and so on. The world is hopefully ever making progress forward. And is that not one of the greatest gifts we can leave to future generations? A world. Maybe not even a world, but a crumb of something that is better than we ourselves had. Something we could only have dreamed of, and perhaps our parents might not have even imagined at all. And am I being a little preachy here, a little idealistic? today? Yeah, possibly. But I've come to realize that there's a lot more to life than just my own immediate fulfillment of whatever enjoyment I can have at the expense of all else. I can sacrifice a little. I can give a bit, here and there, throughout my life, so that the lives of future people can be better. And no, I can't help everyone. No one can. But if each of us takes a small swallow of the medicine that makes the world better, we will have lived a good life. So today, let's take a strain. Let's take one on the chin, expect nothing in return, knowing that our small sacrifice, likely to be forgotten by us in no time at all, may make the world just a bit better for those that follow behind us. Let's go out and be like John Adams. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe, this is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod. Or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks, as always, for listening.